From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, prison life during a pandemic. As an inmate, P.J. Abernathy's main concern wasn't catching COVID-19. It was that his father would. He's older. He's got a blood pressure condition, which makes him a high-risk person. And even outside of a pandemic, that's the number one fear of any inmate is something happening to their family. Abernathy's now on parole. He got out early because of the pandemic. And we'll hear his story as advocates press the state to do more early releases. Later, a speed-eating champion takes on the slopper at the Colorado State Fair. I'm pretty good at finding a rhythm and, and making all the muscles work together, everything from my hands to my jaws to my esophagus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a place where it can be literally impossible to escape COVID-19, prison. It's why early on in the pandemic, Governor Jared Polis relaxed standards around early release, paving the way for about 300 inmates to get out earlier, including P.J. Abernathy of Denver. Ultimately, there's nothing any prison can do to contain a virus. There's a lot of at-risk people in the prison system, and because of the way prisons are set up, everybody lives on top of each other. And the idea of social distancing in a prison is ridiculous. I remember at one point counting seven people in my immediate living area that probably would have died just because of their health. That's from a Newsy documentary. Abernathy will join us shortly. We have lots of questions for him about what it's like to be in prison during a pandemic, about his release and his life now. First, though, it's important to know that the governor allowed these relaxed early release standards to expire. And some families think he's wrong for that. They are suing, asking him to let their loved ones out early to keep them safe from COVID-19. Sandra Wilson's husband, Gary, is serving a year sentence for drug possession. He has a lung disease called COPD, and she worries if he gets the virus, he won't survive. He could die without me touching him, seeing him, or looking in his eyes. Advocates are pushing for the release of offenders who they say won't pose a threat on the outside. And they found around a dozen people who they believe fit that bill. An 84-year-old who served almost 40 years for robbery and is now in a wheelchair. A man with a chronic lung condition who has served seven years for robbing a bank without a weapon and who has found sobriety. Hassan Latif runs the Second Chance Center in Aurora, which works with people newly released from prison. At some point, whether someone deserved to go to prison or not, at some point it stops serving a purpose. These pandemic early releases ended after a man got out of prison and was arrested on suspicion of first-degree murder a short time later. Asked about the specter of resuming earlier releases, the governor instead focused on testing for the virus in correctional facilities. We have been really doing pioneering work to reduce prison outbreaks, and we've been more successful than many other states. But there have been outbreaks and nearly 900 positive cases reported in the state prison system. Helen Griffiths of the ACLU of Colorado says the governor is mischaracterizing things. Frankly, Governor Polis has fed into this sense of fear by saying that he won't release dangerous criminals, which makes it sound like it's a public safety risk to release people from prison. 
Griffith says there are inmates too dangerous to release, but they're not who she's focused on in this lawsuit. Well, now T.J. Abernathy of Denver, who got pandemic early release when that was still possible. The 28-year-old was convicted of felony menacing for assaulting his best friend while hallucinating on drugs. He was doing time at the privately run Crowley County Correctional Facility east of Pueblo and was within months of his release date. He was let out earlier because he was considered a low risk to reoffend, not because he was medically vulnerable. And not long after he got out, the facility started confirming what would eventually be dozens of COVID-19 cases. Among the state's prisons, Crowley County now has the third largest cluster. PJ, thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. Can you describe what it was like inside when you started to learn about the pandemic? Well, in prison, everything gets blown out of proportion by the inmates just because it's a pressure cooker environment. So I think for an inmate, it's a lot scarier than it is in society. Um, One of the things I've noticed since getting out is there's a lot of people who really don't take it very seriously at all. But in prison, it's a pretty serious thing for everybody just because you're almost certain that you're going to get it. Now, let's be clear. Did you catch COVID-19? Not that I know of. I've still yet to be tested, but I know that I was exposed to it. So it sounds like the environment in prison is prone to what? Rumor? Exaggeration? Well, in prison, there's definitely room for exaggeration just because we don't really know what's going on. My only source of news was from the radio Nobody else really wanted to watch the news. We were too busy watching terrible daytime television. So I was actually listening to your news almost every day. And other than that, I was kind of on my own and everybody else was too. And the prison doesn't really tell you anything. It's their job to sort of keep you in the dark. They don't want to tell you too much about what they're doing. So you just kind of have to guess and and it leaves open a lot of opportunities for people to make things more fantastic than they really are. But on that same point, the environment in prison is also a perfect Petri dish. I wonder if you thought often about your family on the outside and and what worries you might have had for them. Well, even outside of a pandemic, that's the number one fear of any inmate is something happening to their family while you're in there just because you can't be there for them and you're, you're totally out of the situation. You can't do anything to help that person. So my father, he's older, he's got a blood pressure condition, which makes him a high risk person. And every day was just me wondering if this was going to be the day where he got sick and listening to stories after story about, you know, people who get this virus and three weeks later they're gone. Mm -hmm. And it, it definitely rose the anxiety of everybody. Everybody was on pins and needles and and hoping that their their loved ones were okay. You you honestly you care more about them than yourself while you're in prison. That's oh, so interesting. And and what yeah. powerlessness that must feel like. Um, so were visits visitations limited or eliminated? And did that affect the kind of contact you would normally have with loved ones? Yes, they were completely canceled starting, I believe, in March. Um, Actually, they canceled it the day before my birthday in March. So I remember I had a visit scheduled 
to see my mom and my dad and they canceled the visit. So what they ended up doing was figuring out how to do video visits, which obviously isn't quite the same. And it sort of perpetuated some inequalities in a way. I noticed that the only people who got video visits were people who had some money on their books or, or money coming into them. So it was kind of unfair, you know, people who normally would get visits, their their loved ones didn't have access to technology or mm. couldn't figure it out. And so only the more well-off inmates got those kind of visits. So you've hinted uh, in several ways, and we heard also in that video clip about how difficult it is to distance in prison. Will you say more about the conditions that you think make something like COVID-19 so easily spread in prisons? I mean, we've heard the Department of Corrections talking about additional hand-washing stations and ways that they've tried to make the environment safe, but what was working against them? Prison itself is a jar of sardines that you're shoved into, and you have a de facto living partner who's your cellmate. And whenever you're locked down in your cell, which is at least half the day, most of the time, um, you're no more than five feet away from that person at all times. So their choices during the day and how clean they choose to be ultimately is your choice as well, whether or not you want it to be or not. So uh, it leaves you incapable of being completely in control of your own hygiene, just because that person can choose to have contact with a lot of people and then not wash their hands. And then they're locked in a 10 by 10 room with you for the night and expose you as a result. So just the the basic nature of prison being a pressure cooker of people who live on top of each other, work out with the same equipment, eat on the same tables, eat off the same trays all day long, sort of makes the idea of social distancing a joke. And there's another aspect that works against prison, especially a private run prison, and that's their profit margin. They, at one point, I knew it was getting bad because they handed out soap. And anytime the prison spends money on inmates, you know that things got to be bad. And the soap they gave us was unmarked, just, just the worst soap ever, right? And I mean... If you look at it, it's really just them trying to look good. That's really the point. At the end of the day, their biggest goal is to just make sure that if the ACLU or the person in charge comes by, it at least looks like they're trying to do something. Did you think about uh, trying to get into ADSEG, uh, what we know of as solitary confinement to like protect your health? You know, I never made that calculation, but that's an excellent thought. I bet you there are people out there who have done it. I do know that the ADSEG pod, at least in our unit, actually became the quarantine pod Mm. where they would put people who had tested positive. So at least in my experience, that would have actually probably exposed me to the virus even more. Ah, interesting. And and I don't want to make it seem by any means that ADSEG would be a walk in the park. So please understand that. What did you change about your own behavior to protect yourself? I mean, what what power did you feel you did have? You know, I definitely washed my hands like a maniac, um, probably about 10 times a day. I think Uh, prison is just a really dirty environment. I had 
already had MRSA my first year in prison. It's a really serious infection. Yeah, it's a very bad skin infection that can actually lead to blood poisoning and death. So having been through that, I was already aware of just how gross prison really is. They would make us wear masks in line to get meals and we would be nose and toes with the person in front of us and we would sit right next to them when we sat down and take our masks off. So it was sort of like, you know, six feet away is impossible in that environment. Your case manager identified you as a candidate for earlier release. Uh, tell me about hearing that that was a possibility. How did you find out? Well, I we knew that they were letting people out early. There were obviously tons of rumors going around. And I had been waiting to go to a halfway house for over six months and had heard that they had stopped taking people to the halfway house. So I, I sort of wrote that off and assumed that I was just going to get out in uh, mid-August. And I remember getting called down to see my case manager through the intercom in my cell. And I was actually tattooing somebody at the time. You were tattooing someone at the time. I I was tattooing somebody at the time. And and so I, you know, I, I wash my hands. I try and get all the ink off of me. And, you know, I'm freaking out. I run down to the to the case managers. Let, let me pause. Uh, let me pause this story here a little bit, just because I want to kind of draw out every detail here. What were you tattooing on your? So on your at the time, I was working on my buddy on the inside of his arm. We were doing a a Denver skyline piece with a big sunset in the background and a quote on the bottom of it. Came out pretty cool. So I was I was happy to be able to do that on him for him. He lives across the street from me in society. Mm. And we ended up knowing each other in prison. Crazy story. And is so, are tattoos like that legal? Is that something? No, very, very much against the rules. Oh, okay. uh, so that I guess that's why I was freaking out. You know, we used to cover the intercoms whenever we tattooed in prison. We would cover the intercoms so they couldn't listen to the noise going on in the cell. And so we hear a muffled, you know, and we peel the toilet paper off the the speaker and it says, Philip Abernathy, get down to case management right now. And, you know, I thought I was in trouble, but uh, it turns out I, I sit down and my case manager hands me some paperwork and it says early release due to COVID-19 considerations. And I just, I burst into tears uh, right there. You know, it was just the last thing I expected. I, I literally expected to be handed a write-up for doing something wrong. And Mm. instead I I got told I was getting out of prison. Exactly how many days, months, weeks early? I got out three months early. Um, So I got out April 29th and I would have uh, been released mid-August. So it was about three, three months. And and that's a long enough amount of time to bring you to tears. Yes. uh, Prison, especially in a pandemic, prison is just not a very nice place to be. It sort of saps the energy from you. And it's just a a big weight to bear. And any time spent with your loved ones is a blessing. And I didn't learn that until I couldn't spend any time with them. Our guest is PJ Abernathy of Denver. He qualified for a pandemic early release from prison and is now out on parole. When we come back, does he think he deserved to get out early? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms. With spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. P.J. Abernathy of Denver still had months left in his prison sentence. He was doing time at the Crowley County Correctional Facility east of Pueblo. Then in April, he was summoned over an intercom and informed he was getting out early in light of the pandemic. He was considered a low risk to reoffend. Abernathy is now on parole. And let's get back to our conversation. Obviously, the governor asked that prisons thin their ranks because he wanted to prevent mass outbreaks behind bars. And the idea was that people with certain kinds of offenses would be deemed safe to release early. Having said that, I'm sure you know that a man who was released early from prison because of the pandemic uh, is accused of killing a woman in Denver several weeks later, and that has led to pushback against this executive order. I'll say, PJ, your crime was a violent one. You assaulted a friend, I think like a childhood best friend, while you were hallucinating on mushrooms. You are also a registered sex offender because of pornography that you had on your computer when you were 18. What are your thoughts about how the prison system decides who's safe to release? You know, I don't know, honestly, and I wish that I did, because to me, it seems almost arbitrary. I see people who clearly don't pose any risk get denied release. I see people who clearly present a risk get denied release. Let me ask this. Do you think you deserve to get out early? I, I struggled with that. I, I did my time and, you know, I've had a roller coaster life of 10 years of dealing with these problems. And honestly, no, hmm. there's people in prison right now who did far less than me and got far more time. And that's a big burden on me is feeling like I don't deserve to be out here. I remember one of the worst things I ever saw was the dude in the cell next to me got 16 years for stealing cell phones. Uh, He's a black guy. And and here's me, some, you know, white kid from a privileged neighborhood who stabbed somebody in the head with a pair of scissors. You know, granted, I was on shrooms, but that's a serious crime. And it's violent. And and what he did isn't violent, but he got 16 years. And I remember listening to that story. And that's just one of hundreds in prison. And it changed the way I looked at everything. Um, I was a Trump supporter before I went to prison. And, you know, I'll try not to get too much into politics. But all I have to say is that when you actually are exposed to inequalities and you actually see the difference in the way that institutional America treats minorities compared to white people or, or just people who aren't in poverty, which is really the defining line. It it hurts your heart when you realize that you're part of the other half where you actually do have privilege. You feel like you don't deserve it at all. And so your release feels like privilege. Is that what I hear you saying? 
Absolutely. Mm. And it is, it, it absolutely is a privilege. You know, I, I only got an early release. One of the defining factors was having a parole address, uh, which is a house that my parents own in Denver that me and my sister live in and having a pre-approved parole plan, which is a massive obstacle to people in poverty who they went to prison and it's not like they were able to hold on to their property. Mm -hmm. So where are they going to go when they get out? And so you had lined up a halfway house, uh, though that, of course, in a pandemic sounds like it carries its own risks. So you wound up at your family's home? Yes, I did. The halfway houses actually unrelated to the pandemic closed down. Uh, Governor Polis is actually he's fighting the good fight against private prison corporations in Colorado, at least. And one of the first measures he took was actually closing down the private ran halfway houses. And that was before the pandemic hit. And as a result, it lengthened the, the wait time to over six months. And then after the pandemic hit, that added another still undetermined amount of time trying to get into a halfway house. So by the time I was accepted, it was pretty much understood I would never actually go. Take me to the day of your release. What was that like? And remind us how long you'd been in prison uh, by the time you were released. Yeah. So at that point, I'd been in prison for about two years and I was in solitary at the time. They had opened up a previously closed prison. This is at C- CSP, the Colorado State Penitentiary. Yes. And it's it's actually, it stood closed for, I think, almost 10 years now. There's just been nobody in there. So when the pandemic hit, they opened that up as a transport facility. Everybody leaving and everybody coming to prison would go through there and they would be able to be quarantined um, and kept in solitary. So I was there for about, I think, three days and the food was great compared to where I had been and the mattresses were new. So that was nice. And I remember just feeling like I was in a dream almost walking out of there. You get this crazy outfit to wear it's some donated clothes. And I remember being on this prison bus and driving out of the gates. And that was the first time I hadn't been in inside of razor wire for two years. And it's, it's like walking out of a door and smelling the fresh air and seeing my family's vehicle and just knowing that this is finally, finally happening. At some point in prison, you, you stop thinking about getting out because it's just too difficult to have on your mind all the time. So in order to get through it, you just focus on what you're doing right now. And having that mindset, I kind of kept it till the very end. I didn't, I didn't think about getting out of prison until I was actually out of prison, you know? (laughs) I can see how how you'd, you'd bottle that up. It'd be almost too, too painful to consider. Are you working? How's your life? And and what do you think your chances are of staying out of prison? Oh, my chances are excellent. I follow all the rules. Um, I've made a huge change in my life. I'm an iron worker. I I work construction, you know, six days a week and work my ass off and make a decent life and spend a ton of time with my family. And I couldn't be happier. This is the back end of a 10-year journey that's taken me all over the place. And to finally be on the other side of it feels great. 
And instead of focusing on the things I can't do anymore, I can actually look at things that I can do compared to prison. Um, it's given me some space and perspective in my life that I actually really needed. And, and yet you come into a world that is to some extent on lockdown. I mean, it certainly has opened up from where it's been, but we we don't move freely about the cabin <laughs> um, much anymore. So was there a feeling of, of like irony, disappointment that you would be rejoining a world that was much more constricted? No, because my world is still very constricted. I have a GPS monitor on and a curfew and, you know, I, I don't go to bars. I don't do a whole lot except for work. And so it's not like I'm really feeling like I'm missing out on much. Mm. Um, I, if anything, it's actually probably made it a little bit easier. <laughs> the temptations are less. That's what I hear exactly. you say. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more, PJ, about parole in the pandemic. Are there, are there other ways it's different? Yeah. Pandemic parole is kind of bizarre. The rules prevent parole officers from really coming into contact with the people they supervise, which makes their job basically impossible. And they're swamped because a lot of people have been released. So there's been a lot of inmates who get out. And like you said, they're not under a typical parole supervision. And so there's less oversight on their behavior and, and there's people taking advantage of it. And it hasn't been until recently where they've started to get caught and sent back to prison. One of my first cellmates actually uh, just recently went back to prison for a parole violation. So I think there's a huge strain on the system right now. It's just massive. And communication between a, a parole officer and an inmate right now is very short and to the point, you know, there's there's not a lot of time to worry about little stuff. It's basically, are you following the rules? Are you selling drugs? Are you getting high? Are you doing anything wrong? If not, I don't really care. You know, <laughs> that's basically what's going on. So, I mean, I realize okay. you don't necessarily have anything directly to compare it to because you, you haven't, I don't think you've been on parole outside of a pandemic, but do you have a fear that with a reduced relationship between parolee and parole officer, that there actually might be more recidivism? Yes, it scares me a lot, actually. I, I always feel like I'm, I'm not communicating enough. And I mean, technically, if they wanted to, they could violate you just for not being in communication with them. So they have a running list of parole violations that they keep on every parolee. You know, that's their backup plan. If this person starts screwing up, they can actually technically violate them for any number of little things. And those little technical violations are not in short supply at all right now. There's definitely tons of them going around just because, for instance, I'm supposed to call the CYS prison program where you call it in every day and you can leave a message for your parole officer and you tell them where you're going for the day. Well, with all the extra people who have been released, I can call them six times during the day and never get through. I can be on hold for over an hour and just the, the call gets dropped. And technically, if you skip one day of calling CYs, that's a parole violation. CYs is the DOC's check-in system. You're saying that's, yeah. that's backed up the Colorado oh. web-based <sighs> integrated support environment system. Completely backed up. The wait times are 
you know, at least 30 minutes. You know, I work at 7 a.m. Um, I leave, you know, at 6. So I have to try and make that call in that commute time. And typically I can't do it. And, and then I'm sort of like wondering the rest of the day, like, did I do something wrong? You know, because I tried to call and I don't know what else to do. So oh. I'll call. I, I used to call on my lunch break, too. And then I would I still wouldn't get through and I would call when I got off work and still wouldn't get through. So what what is a what is somebody on parole supposed to do in this situation? And, and there's no guidance. It's basically like it's almost like the honor system. And there's a few points of contact. The court ordered therapy is still going on. And that's very good. And that's always been the first point of contact for parole. So they're really picking up the tab, if you will. Court ordered therapists are really under a huge amount of strain right now. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and your insight. Absolutely. I thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about this. P.J. Abernathy of Denver was released early from the Crowley County Correctional Facility amid concerns about the spread of COVID-19 in prisons. Correctional facilities now are doing what we've seen schools do, cohorting, that is, avoiding large gatherings and trying to keep the same smaller groups isolated together. We invited the head of Colorado's Department of Corrections to talk about these and other steps, but he declined in light of the ACLU's lawsuit. So Colorado Matters producer Ali Budner has been working the phones to get a better understanding of what precautions prisons in this state are taking. Hi, Allie. Hi, Ryan. We should make it clear that P.J. Abernathy was incarcerated in one of Colorado's privately run prisons. Again, the Crowley County Correctional Facility. It's operated by CoreCivic. You reached out to CoreCivic after our discussion with Abernathy. And one of the things he talked about was feeling like he and other inmates were left in the dark when it came to information about the virus. What did CoreCivic say about that? I spoke with a CoreCivic spokesperson, Amanda Gilchrist. She said there's a robust COVID-19 communication process in place at the Crowley facility to, quote, help keep inmates informed. Um, She told me that the prison had regular town hall meetings, that they posted flyers and presented information over the closed circuit television system. She said all of those things basically serve to encourage inmates to take effective steps to prevent the transmission of the virus. And of course, things might have changed between when P.J. Abernathy was in this facility and uh, and now. Um, what did the company say it was doing to try to keep inmates and staff safe in an environment where a virus could spread so easily? So yeah, it's most of the things that we are all pretty familiar with by now. She said that staff are required to wear masks unless they're eating or drinking. Um, She said they've provided masks to inmates and staff. They're also making disposable gloves available for staff that are conducting searches and handling property. And, And staff working at the front lobby, screening sites, wear personal protective equipment. Um, Gilchrist also said that staff are told to wash their hands according to CDC guidelines. She said, in addition, they clean and disinfect surfaces and objects and shared equipment um, that are touched by staff and inmates. When it comes to social distancing, she said they, they tell staff to, quote, routinely encourage appropriate social distancing. What about testing? 
Abernathy was released April 29th, and the outbreak at Crowley occurred in early May. Uh, So that may be part of why Abernathy says he wasn't tested. There hadn't been a confirmed positive case at that point. Right. So Gilchrist with CoreCivic confirmed that a total of 66 inmates and six CoreCivic staff members at Crowley have tested positive for COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. All of those positives were confirmed in early May. She says that they've all recovered um, and there have been no COVID-19 deaths at the Crowley facility. By comparison, there have been three reported deaths from COVID at a different facility. That's the Sterling Correctional Facility and there's more than 500 positive cases there. So how is Crowley handling testing in general? Well, Gilchrist said that they are, quote, working with local and state health departments to conduct appropriate testing. But she wasn't really specific about what that means in terms of actual COVID tests. She did say that all employees are screened upon entering a core civic facility. They have to answer a screening questionnaire related to symptoms of infection um, and temperature. And then as far as inmates who are transferring into the facility, she said that medical staff participate in the intake process to identify people who are deemed high risk. And she said they isolate people who are deemed high risk as well. All right. That's the view from CoreCivic, again, the company that runs this private prison east of Pueblo. But you, Ali, reached out to a spokesperson for the Colorado Department of Corrections and asked about Abernathy's claim that it seemed like the prison was just grasping for straws when figuring out whom to release. What did they say to that? I spoke with Annie Skinner, who is CDOC's spokesperson, and she said the releases were in no way arbitrary. She said the department evaluated and released inmates in accordance with the governor's executive order. That's that's the order that has since expired. She said the decisions were based on detailed criteria, which is posted on their website. And as for Abernathy's claim that it's nearly impossible to social distance in prison, Skinner agreed that's actually true. About the parole system, you know, we heard P.J. Abernathy say he thinks that system is not functioning properly during the pandemic. And he mentioned that phone reporting system, that kind of check-in system, CYs, which he routinely couldn't get through to. Uh, what's the response there? So Annie Skinner, again, she said this doesn't represent a widespread issue. From her perspective, she said CYs appears to be working fine at this time. And if he's having issues that he needs to speak with his parole officer about them, that was her response. Okay. And that would presumably be good advice for anyone else experiencing issues. What about when Abernathy said that a parole officer's job is almost impossible because there's less interaction and supervision during a pandemic, you know, and just that, that some parolees can take advantage of that. Yeah, well, she said that parole offices remain open. She said parolees still need to come to the office if they're directed to do so by their parole officer. Um, There have been modifications made to allow for other methods of checking in to ensure contact uh, that don't require an office visit. For example, parolees who are, are sick or immune compromised over 60 are considered at high risk for infection. They're not required to come into the parole office, but they still have to maintain contact with their parole officer and that the parole officers get in touch with them. Uh, she said that's how it works. And and then finally, she, she actually dismissed Abernathy's claim 
that he's worried parole officers are stockpiling parole violations to use on parolees if they need to. According to her, uh, she said that's completely untrue. Well, thanks for this perspective, Ali. Glad to do it. Thanks, Ryan. Colorado Matters producer Ali Budner, and it is our hope to have the head of corrections in Colorado on the program when he's available. We'll be right back. This is CPR News. Policing as we know it has been shaped by the war on drugs, which, by the way, is still happening today. We're in a moment of people questioning the institution of policing. People who work and believe in drug policy reform should not see this as something that is separate from them. The intersection of legal weed and policing on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's been called the sanctum of salivation, the coliseum of competitive eating. This is the World Slumber Eating Championship. Now is the hour when glory calls. This weekend, the Colorado State Fair again hosts the World Slopper Eating Championship. Major League eaters will dig into Pueblo's signature food, cheeseburgers soaked in green chili. Last year, Darren Breeden of Orange, Virginia, ate 28 of them. He won cash, a slopper top trophy, and... The right to call themselves the world slopper eating champion of the world. Breeden will defend his title against the guy who's billed as the greatest eater in history, the man who's consumed more than 14 pounds of boysenberry pie in eight minutes, 121 Twinkies in six minutes, and most famously, 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Joey Chestnut of San Jose, California, holds records as well for scarfing down dozens of other foods from gumbo to gyoza. Joey, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me on. And indeed, you have a wide variety of foods on your eating resume. I wonder if you had heard of a slopper before the first competition in Pueblo last year. No, no, I hadn't. uh, (laughs) It looked like a weird food, and I I couldn't make it to the contest last year. But this year, I I looked it up, and it actually looks pretty tasty. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited. So you have not had a slopper before, is that right? No, no, but tonight I'm actually I'm making them. I'm going to do a practice contest, and I'm going to come up with a technique to eat them, and I, uh, I, feel, I feel pretty good. What does it mean to come up with a technique to eat something? Well, you have to find the fastest way to get the food down. You don't want to overstuff your mouth to the point where you can't breathe. You want, don't want to eat so much that certain muscles are getting tired. So I, I need to just find a, an efficient way to get it down and keep doing it throughout the eight minutes. You'll see that during the contest, like some of the eaters will, uh, they'll be fast in the beginning, but they have no, uh, they have no strategy. They, they, they're not looking at the whole eight minutes, and they'll they'll slow down really quickly. And me, I'm I'm pretty good at finding a rhythm and, and making all the muscles work together. Everything from my hands to my jaws to my esophagus to the, even the muscles farther down in my, in my abdomen where I'm pushing the food down. I'm getting everything to work together. Oh. And, uh I've become familiar with the food, and uh, it it really helps. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. I've thought of this largely as a chewing and swallowing event. But uh, as you say, there's a lot of musculature involved. I mean, we've all had the experience of eating something too quickly and having our jaw muscles get tired. Uh, And then you have control uh, further down your 
your digestive system. So the, the competition slopper, I understand, is a little different from what you'd get at like a Pueblo restaurant. These will consist of a quarter pound burger, a slice of cheese and the bottom bun, along with four ounces of green chili. Do you think that the technique will be very different from other foods you've won with? Yeah, it's going to be different uh, a little bit. It, it, it's going to be sloppy. <laughs> and uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it looks like the, the chili, from what I understand, it's not going to be really spicy. And the Pueblo chilies are, are different from Green Hatch. Then, so that's what I have to practice with. We don't have the actual Pueblo chili in California. So uh, I'm hoping my chilies are similar, but uh, it's going to be sloppy. Uh, and you don't have to, we're not, we're not going to be forced to eat all the liquid, but uh, it, it, we have to eat all the, all the burger, cheese, and bun. So they'll, they'll give us deductions if we make a mess. So uh, it, all, all the flavors seem like they, they, they're good. So I, I think uh, I'll, I'll be okay, I think. I am not even going to touch the Pueblo versus Hatch chili debate. Uh, you you know that that's like <laughs> World War Three material. I don't know if you know that. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So I, just... I didn't know the Pueblo ones are, are <laughs> unique to that, that area. And uh, I was told, yeah, I'll just get Hatch chili. And I was like, all right, I'll, that's, that's what I can get. That's what you can but, get. Uh, Is it important that you like a food to win with a food. I mean, I'm thinking of my least favorite foods. I, I oh, dis- ab- absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it makes it so much easier when I like the food. I, uh, th- I mean, there's been times where I, I, I can still pull out a win if I, if I, you know, the food's not something I like. But uh, when it's a food I like, it, it's like I'm just happy. I'm happy in the beginning of the contest. I'm happy in the middle of the contest. Towards the end of the contest, I'm a little bit full and a little bit tired. But after the contest is over, my body's still happy. It, it just feels good, and that's yep. what I love. There are there are contests where sponsor does a poor job, and uh, and it's it's work. I'm making mm-hmm. I'm making faces early on in the contest, and <laughs> I'm drinking lots of water to to hide the flavor and just get it down quickly. But it, it's it 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 happens. It's like it's just like the conditions of a race. Some races have a bad conditions, and some some have beautiful conditions. And uh, I'm I'm hoping that we're gonna have some some really good conditions on Saturday. I've heard there's a condition called meat sweat. What is that? Oh my God. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, it, it, especially it's the big boys like me, I'm, I'm a little bit chubby, but, uh, once the, once the meat starts getting in the stomach and, uh, your body just knows it's there, you're going to start sweating. It, it's, uh, it, it puts a lot more energy in digesting it and you just start sweating like a madman. And it's, uh, oh. and it, it's a different kind of sweat. It, it's, uh, without getting graphic it's a little bit greasy and uh you, you, later in the day you all end up smelling like whatever i was eating and uh it's it's life it, it, every kind of competition has a has some weird uh weird side effects and meat sweats uh i'm going to be smelling like like meats and chili most likely later on that day you will smell like what you consumed. Uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and we're speaking with Joey Chestnut, champion eater who will be participating in the Colorado State Fair's slopper contest in Pueblo. Uh, in July, you took home the mustard yellow belt for the 13th time at the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. That event draws tens of thousands of spectators, but due to the pandemic restrictions, there was no crowd this time, and there won't be 
at the state fair here in Colorado. What's it like to compete without a crowd? It's uh, it's, it's just different. It's weird and doing something that I mean, I've been doing this contest for 15 years, and that was the first time I'd ever eaten without a crowd. And it, I mean, I, I practiced without a crowd, and but it's hmm. uh, it was weird. But it was it was still pretty amazing because I knew people were watching. There was an MC there yelling at me and yelling at the other eaters to the, the yelling out how we were doing and, and really just motivating us. And uh, it was it was kind of a test of uh, just seeing how bad do you want it. And I, I wanted a record, and I was able to squeak out a new record to 75 odd dogs. And I'm gonna dig deep on Saturday, uh, even if there's no crowd, there'll be an MC. And I know people will be watching on the live stream, and uh, I'm I'm excited. It, it, it's uh, it, these are weird times, and we all just gotta find ways to to get motivation and, and dig deep and get it done. Do you think major league eating should have cheerleaders? I don't know about cheerleaders. I uh, <laughs> I, I think. It, it, it's it's been great. It, uh, the fans, the fans over the years have have. Uh, it, I never really thought that I'd be able to call the day that competitive eating has fans, but over and over, I, every day I get probably ten or twelve pieces of fan mail, and people are sending me things talking about Colorado with the, the Pueblo chili, and uh, so I, I, I it, it, there's definitely a following. And I don't know if we need cheerleaders. We we have plenty of really awesome fans already who give me motivation and. and and push me. Do people recognize you when you're out in public? A little bit, yeah. A lot of it's like it's always guys, which is all right. And, and, uh, and <laughs> wait, why do you think that guys, is? Guys are the big eaters, and uh, guys, I don't know why women do not put it together. But uh, and it's always happy people, and it's the best people who uh, recognize me. And I'm just so happy I can make them happy by uh, doing what I love doing. How would you describe your stomach? It's, uh, it talks to me, and I, I listen to it, and it, it, it always wants more. It always can do more, if I, if I, as long as I pay attention to it the right way. And uh, it's, it's kind of like my, I, I, it gives me food babies, and I uh, make sure I don't eat bad every day, and I make sure I eat healthy in between contests, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's something I cherish, and I, I, uh, I treat well, and I listen to. Joey, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Joey Chestnut, father of food babies, is considered the world's greatest eater. He'll compete in the second annual World Slopper Eating Championship at the Colorado State Fair this weekend. It'll stream live on the State Fair website and Facebook page. Finally today, new music from the Cody sisters. Teenagers Megan and Maddie are already well-established on Colorado's bluegrass scene. Throughout the pandemic, they've been sharing their performances on their Facebook page, including a cover of Tecumseh Valley by Towns Van Zandt. They shared the video to honor their mom's birthday. Heather Cody's voice can be heard harmonizing on the choruses. She said she come to look for work. She was not seeking favors for a dime a day place to stay so she turned those hands to labor despite shuttered music venues the summer's been rewarding for the Cody sisters in June Maddie the younger of the two 
was named Outstanding Guitar Player by Essentially Ellington, it's the country's top high school jazz band competition. And more recently, Megan got a scholarship from the International Bluegrass Music Association. Here they are, longing to tour and perform again in Thinking on the Road. Hop in the car and start the The sound of going away, never looking back. Trail of flowers on the track. The dishes are as high as we were last night. We were out of our minds. The sink is full and I'm ready. New music from the Cody sisters of Parker with their song, Thinking on the Road. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Natasha Watts. And I'm Ryan Warner. With special thanks today to producer Shauna Lewis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Making-